Now these Sunday evenings we're looking at the letter to the Romans and we're in chapter 7 and we're going to look tonight at verse 13, Romans chapter 7 and verse 13 and the first few words are verse 42. But chapter 7 and verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual. Well, we can tell what Paul is talking about uh, from the context of the verse in this chapter. He's just been magnifying the law of God. You see it in the previous verse. He tells us that God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Now, a single one of those adjectives would have been sufficient. Two, well, that's convicting. But three glowing testimonies to the perfection and usefulness and necessity of the law of God makes us very, very careful of ever being dismissive of the law and thinking, let alone teaching, that through the grace of God, we Christians have got nothing to do with the law today. So that glowing testimony of the law is there in the verse preceding the text that's been read in your hearing. The end of the 12th verse, the law is holy, righteous, and good. And then jump our text to the beginning of the 14th verse, and you'll see that Paul says the law is spiritual. In other words, the law is of the Holy Spirit. And so here is another unrequested testimony of the power and the usefulness of the law of God. The bookends of our text commend to us and tell us of the importance of the law of God. In the news this week, there was a description of what's been happening in New Quay in Cornwall in the past year. A famous seaside town has become the centre in the county for stag parties and underage drinking and antisocial behaviour. And this has been accompanied also by the most inappropriate clothing. There's a garment called a mankini, a skimpy bikini-style bathing costume for men. And one policeman said about this garment, it's disgusting. And many in the town have risen up and protested about all of this. The garment has been banned. The hotels and caravan parks and shopkeepers have put up notices warning men against wearing it. Groups of people staggering and shouting under the influence of excess alcohol have been stopped and arrested. And the authorities are determined that the town where Yol and I spent our honeymoon and where my parents spent their honeymoon before us should once again be a family-friendly place. So people have organized petitions and they've carried placards that say, we want sleaze-free new key, give us back our town, protect children from harm, bring back law and order, don't bury the problem, Solve it. 2,350 petitions so far. And the leader of this protest movement is now the town's mayor. 
And so this is a good use of the law. In one locality, in New Quay, and the town seems to have turned the corner. The law is righteous. So it's uh, a good example to us of why uh, we don't say, well, everyone can choose the lifestyle and morality that they desire. And we don't forbid that. Who are we to judge? Who are we to criticize? That's the spirit of our age. To say, well, some people are exhibitionists. Some people have voracious fleshly appetites. Some people go to massage parlors. And who are we to pass judgment on them? No, um, no man is an island. What you do as a creature of God in God's creation, what you do as someone bearing his image, does matter. How much you eat and drink and smoke and snort and inject and how you speak and dress and what you purchase, how you spend your leisure time, how you spend your Sundays, all that impacts other people. It impacts the children in your home who see and hear you constantly and your neighbors and the people you work with. It impacts God himself. And so we have the right at times to raise our voices in concern and say to the world, there are lines... And we judge that in such circumstances, those lines may not be crossed. And we, we won't tolerate it. For the sake of our children, for the sake of the weak, you can't behave publicly in these ways. The law is good. That's why there are laws and law enforcement agencies. And that is what um, part of what verse 12 is saying. Um, the law is holy and righteous and good. And so now we come to our text, and, and Paul says, did that which is good then become death to me? Did it kill me? So the first thing I want you to see is that it was sin, not the law, that became the destroyer. By no means, NIV says. God forbid, the AV says. Saul of Tarsus was... Uh, a Pharisee, he was a righteous man and a holy man, a man who would love God and love his neighbor. And he was destroyed. He was killed. His self-consciousness, his self-image, he was just destroyed by sin, not by law. Sin was the cause of his demise. Sin became death to him. Sin allowed him to see that he was doing sinful things. And sin led to the death of the old Saul of, of Tarsus. It was, for example, by the law that he discovered that his heart was sinful, that it was a covetous heart. And this um, formerly blameless and self-confident and righteous Pharisee died from a a big, healthy beach ball. He was deflated, and he perished, and was useless. Sin produced death in his life. And it did so by using something that was good. Let me explain that. Let me use this uh, story. Here's a married surgeon, and he becomes infatuated with a nurse, but she refuses to have anything to do with him, quite properly. His obsession with her turns to hatred, and one day he reaches for a scalpel. 
Now, it's, it's a new scalpel. It's in a pocket. It's sealed. It's germ-free. It does fine surgery. He takes it out of its pocket, and he kills her with it. He's taken something that is good, but he has used it for something evil. So do we say ban scalpels? Well, of course we did, because the scalpel didn't murder her. He murdered her using the scalpel. Hammers and nails have no moral quality about them. Every house, you all have a hammer in your house somewhere. Uh, It's good in itself, but men use the hammer and nails to crucify the Son of God, to nail him to a cross. That which was good produced death in the Son of God. And Paul is saying, I want to show you that the sinfulness of sin is the cause of my condition. That sin will use anything and everything to destroy people. Even things that are good. The Ten Commandments. Sin will pick up any one of the Ten Commandments and he will use them as a weapon to destroy us. That's the sinfulness of sin. That's the insidiousness of sin. It takes something good and honorable and, and holy and and it aims it at it and it fires it at us and it kills us. Let me open that up in a number of ways to explain it. It means that the law, for example, has this negative effect on our unbelieving world. Firstly, the natural man resents the law. The law is holy and righteous and good, but the natural man, he doesn't think so at all. He hears the Ten Commandments and He's hostile about them. The spark of autonomy and self-sufficiency that was already there in his heart becomes aggravated when he hears, for example, that it was, it's a sin even to be angry, to have thoughts of resentment and anger in your heart with your brother and want to call him a fool. That it's a sin not to offer forgiveness to those who've hurt you. It's a sin to act in that way. The law comes right up to him and it searches him with its prohibitions. And sin will use the very law of God as a fulcrum. And sin will press down on a man. It will constrict him. It will limit his expression of his own feelings. And the result of this is that there's greater sin than ever there was before. What the good and holy and pure law of God has done is to aggravate this man's feelings because of the spirit of lawlessness it can appeal to that's in all of us. So our resentment at the magnificent Ten Commandments actually incites us to sin. So that's the first thing that the natural man does. He resents the law. And then... Again, the natural man will declare that the law is extreme. When he hears that it condemns his feelings of anger. When he hears that the law addresses his inner lusts and his greed and his jealousy and his covetousness and his envy and never shows itself on his face. 
never intrudes any way into his relationships and his behavior with other people, but it's there in his heart. And the man says, well, that's ridiculous. It's going too far. That's unfair. We're all different personalities. I am prepared to agree with you that there are things that we shouldn't do, and if I do them, I'm wrong. But that's a matter of actions. And a man is responsible for his actions. But now you tell me that the law says... I mustn't covet. I must be content with all that I have received from God in my life. And I'm forbidden by God to desire that the desire to sin is itself sin. Though I don't engage in anything, just tolerate those feelings within me. And I'm guilty in God's sight. I'm speaking, of course, of what comes out of our hearts. I'm not speaking about temptations now from the outside. I'm taking the case of a man who submits to imaginations and feelings in his mind and in his heart and who thinks uh, nothing came of them. I didn't act on them. And so I'm not guilty of sin. The law comes and says, Thou shalt not covet, and tells him that the desire to sin is sin. And his immediate reaction is, uh, Well, that's going too far. That's an impossible standard. That's quite unfair. The law is not unreasonable, just as long as it stops with prohibiting my actions. But you were telling me it it looks at my thoughts and it looks at my secret, innermost feelings. Well, that's an impossible position. I object to that. I'm willing to go on living a moral life, but my own living inner life is my own. And no outside authority is going to jump in and wag its finger at me and tell me that that is wrong. He hates the notion. That our thoughts and our feelings and our desires are open to God. That our evil thoughts are reprehensible in in God's sight. Just as much as our outward deeds and actions. So when the law comes into his life in that searching way and in that condemning way, sin uses it as a fulcrum. And it aggravates the situation. It puts a man into a bad mood. He's annoyed. He temporizes. He feels that he is being dealt with unfairly and unjustly. And so he's going to sin more. The good law explained to him and applied to him and nailed to him has caused those feelings in him. So he says then the law is extreme. And thirdly, he fantasizes about the things that the law condemns. And we have that problem, don't we? There are things that we've done in the day and thought in the day and said in the day and we go to God at the end of the day and we say, "Um, I've got this sin to confess to you, Lord. And then we start thinking about it. And we stop thinking about the, the wonderful mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. And we start thinking about the sin and what we did and where we did it and we might have avoided it and yet we are thinking of justifying it for what we did 
Our behavior is affected by the confession of our sins. For example, I might read now the longer catechism's definition of some of the commandments. For example, the Eighth Commandment. And uh, the longer catechism says, what does the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, what does that condemn? And it says, it forbids theft and robbery and kidnapping and receiving stolen goods and fraud and false weights and measures and removing landmarks and faithfulness in contracts between men. Oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, depopulating areas, monopolizing commodities to put up prices, withholding from our neighbor what is his, covetousness, prizing worldly goods, distracting worries about money, spending time and energy in thinking about how to get and keep and use money, envying the prosperity of others, idleness, gambling, and finally defrauding ourselves of the comfort of using all that God has given to us. That's what it says. That's just one commandment, and that's just the negative aspect. Then he goes on positively to say what the Eighth Commandment positively exalts in us. And we think, oh, yeah, there's that sin. And there's that sin. And there's that sin. And the law plants a consciousness of sin in us. So the law's condemnation may introduce ideas about which I was completely ignorant beforehand. I may be reading a newspaper. I may be watching a documentary about the abuse of children in a certain northern town. And it tells me certain things. It's a news item. But it describes generally horrible perversions of which I've never considered. It's never bothered me until that time. I've never been tempted. I didn't know those things existed. But now I read a government report on what happened in such a place and it alerts me to these shocking things And the moment I read and see the images of this documentary, something stirs within me. And my curiosity is aroused. And I'm saying, do do people do that? Well, it must be exciting to them. It must be attractive to them. And my curiosity begins to work. And I, I see myself participating in all of this. I'm doing it in my imagination. I'm starting to enjoy it. And that's how sin works. I may be a school teacher, I may be a policeman, I may be a clergyman, I may be a politician. None of that will prevent me from dwelling on these things that the law of God says, thou shalt not. Steer clear of behavior like that. You know, the classic statement of this is found in the epistle to Titus, chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and don't believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. So if you're 
your mind is defiled, then you get a straightforward, truthful report of what has happened and what's being done and your mind defiles that report. And nothing then is, is purely objective. It'll have a particular angle on it. It's going to be coloured by the spectacles of an impure heart. Purity is pure just to the undefiled. Here's a little girl, a little girl, a little boy. They, they don't know these horrible things. They, their minds are, uh, are quite untainted by it. They, they, they can't think of what you are getting exasperated about. They don't know about vileness. It's unimaginable to the little boy or to the little girl. But to those who have been corrupted by the information that the law brings and says, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, then it becomes impure for them. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted by it. That's what Paul says. Now, Paul's testimony then in, in these words was his own experience. This is what happened to me. This is what came about in my life. Because it's true. For every man and every woman and every single person here tonight that the law of God comes with its prohibitions and the law of God comes with its restraints and its commandments. And one consequence of this is that we are stimulated and we are inflamed and we are roused by a desire to do the very things that the law of God says. You shouldn't do these things. It introduces us to things we never knew before. And the result is, it produced death in me. Through what was good, Paul says in our text. The law of God is not sin. It is purity itself. But it reveals to us the nature of sin. It helps us to see that coveting is sin. So you see what has happened. The terrible truth about man by nature is that this powerful thing called sin is able to take up the pure law of God as a fulcrum and it produces evil. The law of God produces evil in me. It provides it with a base of operations. The enemy comes in as a flood and I end up being worse than I was before because all I got is thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And that is the explanation, Paul says. So sin, sin has become the destroyer, not the law, but sin has used the law to kill me, to destroy me. Secondly, he says sin must be recognized for what it is. He says here that sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, it's when you're in a war... The, the first rule in a war is know your enemy. Know his strengths. Know his cunning. Know his devices. Know this. You must realize how dastardly and wicked sin is. That it's not some option. You don't very much like this or that. It's, it's not a matter of your personal choice. It's something horribly evil. And that is crucially important. 
if we're not clear as to the nature of sin, then well, we'll never understand the teaching of the Bible. I'm talking to you tonight about another trunk and branch doctrine. Not a leaf and twig doctrine like church government or the millennium. But what is absolutely foundational for you to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You know, I can use my old story of John Riesinger then. It's one of the best illustrations I heard. Uh, they were dressing in the morning and he'd noticed how his wife had put the first button of her cardigan into the second buttonhole and the second into the third and the third into the fourth and so on, all 14 buttonholes. And he came to the top and she realized she had a button left over and there was a hole at the bottom. How many mistakes had she made? Well, she had made 14 mistakes because she had made one fundamental mistake at first. And if you are fundamentally mistaken about what our condition, what the state of our heart is, what sin is in God's sight, how sinful we are, you will then make one mistake after another. Understanding what the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation is depends on this foundation of an awareness of our sin. The power of sin, the cunning, the vigor of sin. That sin wants to kill you. That sin wants to take you to hell. To be with you and in you forever and ever. And you can't remove it by some cosmetic treatment. Sin isn't removed in that way. There's no beautician somewhere in America or in Europe, in Paris, uh, that can remove the effects of sin in our lives. You can't cure sin by putting a sticking plaster over it. It's not removed in that way. There's no hope of you ever understanding what the gospel is unless you understand what I'm telling you tonight about what sin is. You'll never see that you have to die to the law unless you understand the nature of sin. You'll never see why God the Son came into the world, born of a virgin. Two natures, human and divine, in one person. That he lived in obscurity for 30 years. And that he ministered then uh, and fulfilled all righteousness and taught powerfully and pervasively and dealt with the contradiction of men and women who challenged him. Finally, he, he gave his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came into the world, to lay down his life. That that is the only way atonement could be made. That something in the nature of God himself requires that forgiveness and mercy should be ours. Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying that death on the cross. It controls everything. And most of the church's troubles then are due to a failure to to grasp and understand this biblical doctrine of sin. And so here in this verse we are are told, we are given an exposure of sin that you will hardly find anywhere else in such clarity except in this seventh chapter of Romans. 
It is this terrible power that can even take God's law as a fulcrum and it will fulfill its own nefarious ends in, in our lives. And thirdly, sin is utterly sinful, but it is not sovereign. And here is the heart of this text. How does Paul show that it is utterly sinful? Well, he shows it by saying sin will use something. Something that's good. Something that is holy and something that is righteous. Like the commandment of God. That sin will use the command, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Aren't those beautiful words? And that's a a comprehensive summary of what the law of God, what the Ten Commandments teach us. And sin will seize a commandment like that or any of the others because they all are windows on the character of of what God is like, that he is light and he is righteous and he is holy. And they're all saying to us, be like God, be God-like in your life. Sin will take them and sin will say, your God is power-hungry. Your God wants all the glory in your life. He is selfish. You ignore him and you, you be strong and you find your own way in life and make your own choices. So the devil will not be afraid of taking the greatest of God's commandments, which are a, a transcript, all of them, of the very character and the being of God himself. And sin will take them and encourage us, encourage us to sin. By the commandment of God, by making us resentful, by making us bitter, by making us think, ah, oh, that's impossible for, for God to look into our heart and our thoughts and our feelings. Sin will use the holy law of God. That's like us grasping a razor-sharp sword in our hearts. That's like us standing in the midst of a blast furnace that can melt steel and, and, and we are there. Sin is not afraid to, to take God's law and use God's law as a weapon to destroy you and take you to hell. You say, how could the cause of God and truth prosper if the enemy of our souls uses the holy law of God to thwart God and destroy us? What hope is there for us if he's prepared to do that? What a merciless enemy we face and we so helpless before it. Yeah, yeah, let, let's, let's think like that. Let's think only the grace of God, omnipotence acting to redeem us and deliver us. Only that can save us. Let's run from the law and its demands and its condemnation and let's, let's look to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, God is far more powerful and displays his sovereignty and he does that by Using sin. God uses sin. And God uses the devices of the devil for the good of his people. 
That's like us swimming in a cesspool. That's like us jumping into a, a bath of high acid. God can use sin and the devil for his own purposes, to deliver us, to show his power over sin and the devil. The devil will use God's law and will twist it and will destroy our, our life and our peace. But uh, ah, God, will, God will use sin. God will use the devil. Um, we know, for example, that God keeps a tight hold on the chain which attaches every demon and devil to himself. And if a demon comes too close to one of Christ's little ones to destroy them, God yanks the chain. God protects us. The, the demons can only go so far and no further in our lives. Now some servants, they serve their masters with gritted teeth. Some people go in off in their car and they're going to work and they hate their boss and they hate their work but they need the money and they go there they're in servitude they're servants our God reigns the Lord God omnipotent reigns and devils are under his control and devils fear and fly at the name of Jesus our God is in control the, nev the devil has never done anything to bring glory to God Everything he does, he does because he hates God, and he hates God's people, and he wants to destroy them. But God overrules. And in the end, then, God uses sin and the devil to fulfill his own purposes. Let me give you some examples of this. Paul kicking against the prods, the goads of conscience that... Uh, he brought into Saul the torturer, Saul the murderer, Saul the hater of Jesus Christ's life and, and prodded his conscience. And did you hear that scream? Did you hear that beautiful confession that she made that Jesus Christ was her God and she couldn't deny him? And, and you threw her into prison, Paul, and Paul kicked against it and kicked into a goad. When God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, it was a messenger of Satan. And it was a conviction that God brought into his life because Paul had so many blessings and had so many experiences of the goodness of God. And the danger was that Paul would become proud and self-satisfied. And in order to deliver him from that, God gave him some thorn in the flesh. And so Paul became humbler and sweeter and more Christ-like by the messenger of Satan that God permitted and used and let him come into his life. So I'm saying to you, the devil can't win against us. Sin can't win against us. We are more than conquerors through his great love for us. If there was ever a born loser, it was the devil himself. God is in control of our lives. Uh, you see it in the Assyrians' language in Isaiah chapter 10 and verses 7 and 8 and 11. He's not thinking about God, the Assyrian. His one thought is, I'm going to destroy the people of God. That's what he's thinking. 
And then God has other plans. Plans for his conquest and his slavery and his plunder that he is planning that he will engage in. He'll send his big army in and he'll make mincemeat out of the people of God. And God said, no, I'm going to use you to chastise my people for their idolatry. For their neglect of me. For their love of this world. And what idols can bring to them. And so we read in Isaiah 10, 7. This is not what Assyria intends. Assyria didn't intend to be a, a, a chastening rod to correct and humble and sweeten the people of God. This is not what Assyria intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says. Shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? No, God says. You shall not. Assyria wanted to annihilate the people of God. God will use the hatred in Assyria. He will use it. He will temper it. He will control it. To humble the wandering people of God and save them from their idolatry. God is the one directing the thinking of the Assyrians. Their emotions, their hatred. So we discover that the devil then is the hardest working servant of God. He does everything out of pure hatred. But God is directing and checking and guiding and using him to accomplish his purposes in our lives. God is in control in the darkest sections of our journey through life. It's not, ah, well, this was a time when the devil was in control. God was in control of those times, too. When Peter warmed his hands at a fire and cursed and denied that he ever knew Jesus Christ, that he learned lessons at that fireplace and by that denial that he never learned by seeing some of the miracles of Jesus or hearing some of the most powerful parables and preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me uh, give you a little parable then, refresh you now as we're coming to the end. Um, a very wealthy man, and we'll call him Mr. Rich, had a beautiful estate. It was covered with every kind of tree. That was his delight. He was a bachelor. He treated his arboretum as uh, his family. He gave the trees names. And he had one tree, and that tree was his favorite. But Mr. Rich also had an enemy, and we call him Mr. Evil. And he hated Mr. Rich, and he wanted to do everything he could to hurt him, but he never seemed to be able to. God's hand was about him and protected him, and he couldn't. Couldn't hurt a hair on Mr. Rich's head. One night he got a scheme. He got into the grounds of Mr. Rich's house and he chopped down his favorite tree. And then his trouble started because the tree fell in the wrong way and it fell across him and it held him down. It pinned him to the ground. He couldn't move. And so sh shortly after daybreak, Mr. Rich... He, uh, so uh, walked 
into his garden and he came across the tree that had been chopped down. He had a friend with him and there was Mr. Evil pinned under the tree. And he shouted out at Mr. Rich, I know I'm caught, I know I'll be punished, but I don't care, I've destroyed your favorite tree. He was full of pathological hatred of Mr. Rich. And all he could say was, I destroyed your tree, that's what I did. I ruined your tree. Then Mr. Rich spoke to him and said, let me introduce you to my friend, he's a building contractor and... I had to cut down one of my beloved trees to build a summer house for my parents. And I'd chosen this spot. And I'd brought this friend of mine to show him what tree I was planning to cut down. But you see, you've saved me the trouble. Thank you. Now there's a little parable. And it teaches that everything that sin and the devil will do will always in some way for the elect of God, further God's purposes for them. We don't always know how. But one day we will know. There will be no mysteries or questions in heaven that will trouble us for eternity. God will explain to us one day these things. God must accomplish his purpose in a world of sin. There's a lot of dirty work to be done. And God never gets his hands dirty, but the devil will unknowingly take care of that. So here are Joseph's brothers, and in their hearts there's malice and hatred and anger and envy and bitterness towards Joseph. And so they seize an opportunity, they get him, and they sell him into slavery. They meant it for evil. But God meant all that evil for good, did he not? By Joseph's slavery, then he was elevated and he was able to specially care for his brothers and for their seed and their line and for the seed of the woman who one day our Jesus would come through one of the brothers of Joseph. The Assyrian was motivated by lust for power and conquest. The chief priests were motivated by absolute hatred of Jesus, our Savior. But God determined by the death of Jesus, deliverance, redemption, forgiveness of sins, washing, cleansing, would come to us through him. They condemned and crucified him, but they did what God determined beforehand to be done. As I often tell you, what God sovereignly decrees in eternity, man will always demand in time. But man will always be held responsible for what they have done. The devil is going to be cast into the lake of fire. The cosmic incinerator of all wickedness, sin, is utterly sinful. It will be treated as it deserves. And sin is not sovereign. God is omnipotent. Oh, God is on the throne. If Satan uses the law, which is holy and righteous and good, if Satan will use that to to promote us and men and women to sin and death, God trumps it because God will use Satan and God will use evil 
for his own glory and for the good of his people. Our God is in control. Our God reigns. This one verse is sufficient to show the futility of people who say to you, well, um, I was brought up in the Christian faith and religion, but I've developed since that time, and I've read a great deal. I hold to the Christian ethic, but of course I, I, I can't accept the doctrines any longer. Blind men, poor blind men. How little they know about sin and about the power of sin. The Christian ethic without Christian teaching is useless. It's valueless. It's perhaps the most hopeless situation at all to patronize the law of God and say, yes, you you think living like that is the best kind of trouble-free, good kind of life. That by itself, it doesn't provide us with the, the energy. Illimitable access to an indwelling saviour. We don't have that. We just got ourselves. It's just you. Choosing a partner for life. Bringing children into the world. Caring for them when they grow sick. Providing for them. Being with them when they are old and feeble and All the choices you have to make. You're on your own, son. You're on your own, girl. There are addictions to be broken. There are enemies to be loved and forgiven. There are dependencies to be delivered from. And... Your greatest need is not a law code. Your greatest need is power to counteract the resentment and anger that there is in every heart. And there is nothing like the blood of Jesus Christ to do that. Would you be free from your burden of sin? Well, there's power in the blood of Christ to do that. The Lamb of God. He forgives us and cleanses us and justifies us. If I didn't know that the Son of God had died for me and my sins and had given me new life, if I didn't believe that I'm not on my own, but I'm joined to Jesus Christ, I'm in him and he is in me, I'm married to him, he's my husband, then I would be of all men most miserable and hopeless. I can't live. A good life by myself. By how God defines what the good life is. I can't love him with all my heart. I can't love my neighbor as myself. Just by my wits and by my determination. I need, oh, a new heart. I need a new nature. I need the the Holy Spirit to be in me and with me. To enable me to live in these ways. Because of this devastating, terrible power that sin has. That will continue to destroy me. And all my knowledge of the law is not going to help me at all. I need the constraints of the love of Jesus Christ to keep me sweet and humble and forgiving. And kind and overcoming evil with good. So thank God for Romans chapter 7. 
which not only illuminates the doctrine of of uh, human sin, but enables me to flee from the law and flee from sin and hide myself in the wounded side of Christ and clothe myself in his righteousness and go forth then day by day appropriating by faith the grace and mercy and love and power of Jesus Christ to, to help me. So, modern man, he doesn't understand the power that sin has over him and how he's in its grip. And oh, I hope every one of you begin to understand what an enemy you face and how you, you need the deliverance that God so freely offers in his son Jesus Christ. So that we live uh, no longer in the oldness of the letter. But we live now in the newness of the spirit. That he helps us and keeps us. You've you, you got to have him. You must have him. You must have his salvation. You must have his indwelling. You must have his justification and his sanctification. You must have the great words and know their power in your life. That's being a Christian. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray tonight, and help us to look at sin and see it and experience something of its power and feel how wretched it is. And know we need to pray like David prayed in that Psalm 51 that we read together and express to thee words like his our helplessness and guilt and shame and bless thee for mercy that's greater and forgiveness that can cover the worst of our sins. O oh Lord, don't let us keep for a night longer thee and thy free and lovely salvation out of our lives, but be joined to Jesus Christ and his grace forever and ever. We ask in his name. Amen.